Uh, we are in Luke chapter 18. So we're going to go ahead and hand those out. Yeah, I already grabbed one. I gotcha. All right. Two, three, four, five, six. I think that should be right. There are clipboards up there. If there's any left, I don't know, but there might be. So there should be three there for you guys. And there you go. Yeah, if there's anything on it, you can just take that stuff off. Just grab this off there. Does anyone else need one? Okay. Uh, pens. I do have a couple pens. Two pens. Anyone need a pen? Okay. Hopefully it works. I don't know. <laughs> All right. All right. So what we're going to do um, tonight, as we've been doing really since probably August, I think it was. Um, so you guys have before you a copy of Luke 18, uh, 9 through 13. And so what we're going to do is encourage you. It's a short passage, um, only, what, five verses? One, two, three, four, five, six. Six verses. So um, just six verses, so a simple passage. But I want to give you guys about ten minutes. Uh, work through the passage. Make notes, uh, observations, um, as we've been doing all these last couple of months. Um, circle names, circle things that jump out to you, things that will help you to understand the passage. Um, make notes on the side. If there's something that uh, reminds you of another passage of Scripture, write that down. Take some time and think that through. Um, if it helps to kind of bracket the passage, sometimes that helps me to kind of bracket together. If one person is speaking and one person is speaking, kind of bracket those together to see what the conversation looks like. Um, and so just take about 10 minutes. Um, take some time. Work through the passage. Uh, note it up. And again, we'll come back in just a few minutes and break it apart together.
jump in here, let you guys kind of finish that thought. And so, um, as I've said uh, most weeks, if not every week, um, the reason we, we print off the passage and give it to you is because a lot of times when we're reading through Scripture in our Bible, uh, we tend to just kind of read through big chunks and not really break apart individual verses. And so this gives us a chance to really see the verse stand alone, kind of stand by itself in a sense, so that we can understand it in the bigger context. And so hopefully you, you made some notes, you kind of circled some things, um, and, and I'll just give you a couple examples of what, and I don't like to do this beforehand, because I don't want to say something, and then you go, oh, I should have done that, or should have done this, or I got to do this. But I'll kind of just show you guys, and tell you guys a little bit of what I would do, and then that might help you moving forward. Because like I said before, if this helps you, uh, maybe you would print off a handful of verses and just do this for your own personal devotional life if you don't have something you're working through. So it's an easy way to kind of understand the Word of God. So an example would be if you're bracketing these verses, um, the way I kind of broke it up, uh, 9 and 10, I kind of put a little bracket around them. 11 and 12 would be another bracket. Verse 13 kind of stands by itself. And then verse 14 stands by itself as far as how the passage unfolds. And so again, you kind of see how the, the, the story, the parable is going forward. And, and on that note, uh, one of the key things we have to do with this passage is in verse 9. First, we have to circle the word he, right? That second word in. And he, and then we have to circle the word or square the word or mark the word parable. So this is key. So who's the he in verse 9? Jesus. And so Jesus spake this parable. Now, the reason we have to circle parable, we've talked about this previous weeks when we've done parables, is that is the type of text we're looking at. So everything we're going to understand in the text has to be understood as a parable. If we don't catch that, we're really going to get off track when it comes to applying and interpreting this text. And so again, it's important to note those things as you go through here. Now, parables in the Gospel of Luke is not uncommon. In fact, um, I've heard it said, and as far as I know, Luke contains the most parables of all the Gospels. And we did a study through the Gospel of Luke here, well, it's probably a couple years ago now, but we did a, a verse-by-verse study through the chapter-by-chapter study on Sunday night through the Gospel of Luke. And we broke apart a lot of these parables, a lot of these things. Um, just out of curiosity, I went back and I looked at this section in those outlines, and we really didn't spend much time, it doesn't look like, on this passage. And so uh, I'm glad that tonight we're able to kind of even pull more out of this section of Scripture. And so, again, Luke gives us the most parables in the Gospels. Uh, many of them are very familiar to us. Luke 15 would probably be the most familiar. Uh, if you know it, what, what is Luke 15 dealing with? What's in Luke 15 as far as the parables? It's a real famous one. Okay. Lost sheep, lost coin, and then what's the other something that was lost? What's that? Mm-mm. The lost son, or we call him the prodigal son, right? So here we have in Luke 15, and something interesting about Luke 15 is a lot of us think Luke 15 has three parables. Luke 15 really has one parable told three different ways. So it's the same spiritual points just told from different perspectives or different emphasis. So the lost coin and the lost sheep 
is told from the perception or the perspective, rather, of the one seeking after the thing lost, right? Remember, the woman loses the coin. She sweeps her whole house, and she searches, and she searches, and she searches um, the lost sheep. The shepherd pursues the lost sheep, seeks after that that's lost. And what happens every time something that was lost is found? There's a great celebration, right? They get the neighbors together. It's a big block party. Everybody's excited and celebrating. The part of that parable that deals with the lost son is unique because it gives us the perspective of the one that was lost. We get to actually see, like, we can't know what was the coin feeling when it was lost. What was the sheep feeling when it was lost? We don't know. But from the prodigal son, we can tell you from the passage, this is what the one who was lost felt like, what he was experiencing. Then we can see the example of the father persuading on and then joining the son on the way as he was coming home, met him on the way, and what a beautiful picture of redemption that is. And so that's a very familiar parable. Well, Luke has tons of those, tons of those examples. And so this is just one parable of many in the gospel of Luke. So we want to look at this specific parable and come to an understanding of what Jesus wants us to know from this. So what's the question with a parable? We have to ask the question, what's the point? Okay, if you're reading a parable, really simply, and I know there's much more to it than this, you know, better ways to say this probably, but for me, whenever I come to a parable, I just pause and I say, what's the point? What's the main spiritual point that Jesus is trying to make here? Because if we don't get the main point, we're going to get distracted. Remember we said this before, there can be other points of reference or other points of emphasis, but in a parable, there's the point and then there's minor points you might draw out of that parable. But we got to get the main point. So what's the point of this parable? It basically tells us or teaches us who can be justified. Okay, so the point of this parable is who can be justified. Or you could say it as how are we justified? How are we justified? That's really the point of this parable. How can we be justified? Or maybe even saying it as who can be justified? Now, justify, justification, these are words that were a word that we've heard in Scripture. We read in Scripture. We've heard taught in churches. And so I'm just curious. We don't need, I'm going to give you a little bit longer definition. So I'm just curious. And in a simple sense, because I'm going to give you a little more wordier definition. But in a simple sense, if you were trying to tell someone what it meant to be justified in a sense of the biblical understanding of justification, okay? And we'll break it down. If you're not really familiar with that term or what that means, that's fine. We'll give you more of a definition. But what would you describe or how would you describe to someone that word, being justified biblically? What does that mean to be justified or to have justification from our sins? How would you describe that to somebody in a simple sense? Okay. That, that's... I never sinned. Yep. Yep. So it's just as if I've never sinned. I'm made as though I've never sinned. Okay. How else would you describe that to someone? Or maybe you've heard it described a certain way. How many of you guys have heard it described as what, what Avi said? Kind of the simple, just as if I've never sinned. A couple of us. How many of you aren't sure and you don't want to raise your hand and be wrong? No one. One person. Two people are honest in church. I appreciate that. Praise the Lord. That doesn't count, Josie. You can't go like, you got to get the hand up there if you're going to raise your hand. Unless you really weren't raising your hand. I thought you were raising your hand. So how would we describe that then to someone? Anyone else have an idea on that? Okay. Yep. 
we'll dive into that. Let me give you guys kind of a little bit lengthier uh, definition. Um, and this is from uh, just in a book I've been reading, um, The Gospel According to Jesus. Uh, this is by John MacArthur, and I, I just kind of liked the way he simplified. And this is, it can be considered a simple definition, but I like the way he worded this. So justification is going to be defined as an act of God. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's quite lengthy. So if you want a copy of it, just let me know. You won't, you won't be able to write it all down. But as an act of God, whereby he imputes to a believing sinner. Now, what does it mean to impute? If God imputes something to you, what, what, what does that mean? Okay. Transferring it. If somebody was to impute money into your account, they take their money and they put it in your account. Gives it. Yep. You remember that it was accounted unto Abraham for righteousness. That's another way of saying imputed, right? Accounted to. Abraham didn't have the righteousness. It was given to him. It was accounted to him. So it's a kind of a a financial term. Okay. I didn't have this money. Now I have this money given or given in my accounts. Okay. So it says an act of God whereby he imputes to a believing sinner the full and perfect righteousness of Christ, forgiving the sinner of all unrighteousness, declaring him or her perfectly righteous in God's sight, thus delivering the believer from all condemnation. He goes on to say, it is a forensic reality that takes place in the court of God, not in the heart of the sinner. This is important to understand this. I love that he, that's the part of the definition I really like. It takes place in the court of God. Justification deals with this legal understanding. We are 100% guilty before God if we stand in our own merit, our own flesh. We've all broken God's law. So if I stood before God and you imagine like old school, I think of, I always think of people's court back in the day watching that on TV and you, you're standing there in the courtroom and the judge is up on the bench and all the accusations are made. All the evidence is laid out there. It is a thousand percent obvious that you are guilty. Okay. Now this is where we might try to justify ourselves. Well, I never did this. I never did that. I never did this. Yeah, I did that. I did that, but I never did this really bad thing over here. This is where the spirit of God, obviously we're thinking in a sense of more illustrative. God himself can remind us that what does the Bible say? To offend in, if you've offended in one area, you've offended in all. So if you took God's name in vain or murdered somebody, you're guilty of all of it, right? And so understand this. So we're standing before God. We're guilty. We are deserving of any sentence that God gives. And we know the sentence is separation from God for all eternity in a place called hell. That's the sentence. That's what our guilty verdict demands. But Jesus died on the cross after living a sinless life. We can't forget that part as the righteous lamb. He was the God man, died in our place. So his righteousness is given to us. We do not now on our own works become innocent. We're still just as guilty as we ever were. But God says, okay, I'm making a decision to take this righteousness and apply it to you. So now I don't see a guilty sinner deserving of hell. I see a righteous son or daughter who's entered into heaven. And so that transaction, that declaration is what God does at the moment of salvation. We are justified. We are made the righteousness of Christ. And we're going to talk about this in a little bit here, what we talked about last week, right? What does Corinthians say? That he was made sin for us so that his righteousness was given to us as he took on our sin. And so again, it's a transaction. But I love that MacArthur points out, it's not something that happens in our hearts primarily, 
Now, understand, it does affect us, amen? It does affect our hearts, our minds, our ability to live for Christ. But primarily, it is a decision God makes in his courtroom to declare you justified. And so I love this uh, definition from MacArthur. And that's really what this parable is teaching us. It's teaching us how are we justified? In what way are we justified? Who then can even be justified? Now, if you look at the first verse, verse 9, there's a key here. So he said, he spake this parable unto certain. So when you see things like a certain man or a certain place, it's just another way of saying in in a story-like form. It's like saying once upon a time in a village, there was, and you know from that in our culture, we go, oh, this is a story. So now these characters represent either stereotypes they represent individuals, right? They're, they draw our minds to understanding and application. So he says there were certain which trusted in themselves. So under that, you can write for justification. For justification. So trusted in themselves, that's how they were being justified in their minds. So they trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. So righteous, you can circle that and write self next to it or under it. Self-righteous. And what could we write under despised others? What do we call that? What's that? Hatred. Yeah, absolutely. That, that works. Judgmental. Condemning. So notice this. They're justifying themselves. They're self-righteous. And they're looking at others who are equally as sinful and judging and condemning them because they're not as good as them because they're not righteous. They're not perfect like they are. So he's speaking this very bold, harsh message. And he's speaking it to a group of people right to their face about them. It's like he's saying, I'm going to tell you a story about this kind of group of people. And you're them. This is insane to me that he just does this. And yet we don't hear this in church a lot. A lot of times pastors and even Christians are afraid to be this honest. But notice, we're going to talk about it. Jesus wasn't doing this to be mean. He wasn't being hateful. He wasn't being like snarky, okay? There's a desire here for something to take place. So, goes on to say in verse 10, what's the story? Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. Now, publican means what? Okay, so just write that in there, tax collector, okay? So, we need to ask the question, who is justified? So Jesus sets up the parable in verses 9 and 10. The crowd Jesus had in mind when he began this parable is clearly laid out. Those that trusted in themselves and despised others. This would be the religious leaders of his day. Again, they were self-righteous and judgmental. Not at all what they are called to be from the Old Testament. This this group of Pharisees, the religious leaders, were not supposed to be self-righteous and judgmental. That's not what the Old Testament says. Remember, and I've always said this, this, this group of Jews called Pharisees, they're, they're a sect, they're just a, a grouping of Jews, okay? There are actually a couple different groups that we see from the end of the Old Testament into the New Testament. There's Pharisees, we know them pretty well. They were kind of more your sort of political, religious, they were kind of in the political realm, okay? They kind of want to be sort of buddy-buddy with Rome, but only if it benefits them, okay? They won't really tell you that. They kind of deny it, but they actually 
kind of want to be buddy-buddy with Rome because they like the authority. It gives them the power it gives them, okay? So kind of think kind of like politically-minded religious leaders, okay? Then you have the Sadducees, okay, which we've all heard that, right? Why are they Sadducees? Because they denied the resurrection, so they're sad, you see. Okay, anyway, you've, maybe you never heard that. I heard that a lot when I was coming up the youth group. So they're more of your religious leaders. They're not really interested in the political. They're, they're also consumed with power, but from more of a religious point of view. So that's going to make up your Sanhedrin. If you've heard that term, the Sanhedrin would be the body of religious leaders who kind of oversee different judgments and things like that. Most likely, predominantly, Pharisees and Sadducees. Okay? So they're kind of the governing authority when it comes to the religious in the communities. Then what are the other two groups? Does anyone remember the other two groups if you've ever studied this? One would be, oh, go ahead, Sandra. Yeah, the Zealots, okay? What, what, what do you think they're about? It's a pretty hard-to-guess name, I know. What are these guys after? They're called Zealots. I don't really know. Yeah, they were zealous for the freedom of the Jewish people, so they were very antagonistic to Rome, right? They were most likely trained assassins who were Zealots. Um, something interesting is the Bible says Simon was one of the disciples, Simon Zelotus. He was a zealot, okay? So think that through for a second. Simon, a, a zealot who hates Rome, hates everything to do with Rome. Most likely, we don't know this for sure because it doesn't define this, but most likely based on church history and history from Josephus and those, he was most likely an assassin. And Jesus decides in all of his wisdom to pair him with Matthew, the tax collector, because I'm sure that's not going to have an issue. That's, there's no conflict here. But this is what Christ can do. This is what Christ does in the church every single day. He takes people from two different groups that have no worldly way they're going to work together. Right? And in the gospel, all of that goes away. And now they're both equally working for the advancement of the kingdom. Because that's what the gospel does. It removes barriers and borders and things that we put around ourselves. And this is where two people, and I've, you've heard testimonies of this, you know, someone that was, you know, a Black Panther and Ku Klux Klan come together in Christ and they're working for the advancement of the gospel. That doesn't happen in the world. That happens in the church because that's what the gospel does. It reminds us we're all, as we said this morning, image bearers of God, sinners by nature, needing grace, equally deserving of wrath, but yet given grace at the cross we come together as the body of Christ. And so again, we see that group, the, the zealots. Okay, so Pharisees, Sadducees, the zealots. Does anyone know the last group? Most likely, John the Baptist was one of these. The Essenes, yes. And the Essenes were known mostly as they really didn't want anything to do with Rome, with Greece or the Hellenistic culture. They didn't want anything to do with the religious leaders. They most likely lived out in the wilderness in caves, dwelt in caves. They were also scribes by nature. So they would scribe the word of God. They would copy the word of God. This is why some believe that the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in a cave were most likely left there by Essenes during the intertestament period. And those texts actually were incomplete texts. That's why they were left there because they cannot throw them away per se. They can't just get rid of them. So they stored them. And that's why they weren't complete texts. Okay. They were not fully completed texts. And so most likely there was an error or a mistake or they just weren't completed. So they were not thrown away. They were just stored away. 
okay? And so John the Baptist most likely was in a scene, not really involved in the religious uh, leadership, not really wanting any political involvement. They don't really want anything. They're kind of isolationalist in a sense. Uh, they just kind of kept to themselves and honored God that way. All of these groups in their origin, I believe, started with good intentions. I don't think the Pharisees began as a group saying, we're better than everyone else. Let's make sure we tell everyone that. I think, based on just my understanding of church history, human nature, I think these groups were individuals that said, hey, let's come together, devote ourselves to the law of God, to the word of God. Let's live in a way that honors him, and let's just do that together as a, as a group. But from that comes what we see in human nature, where now all of a sudden, we're better than them. By the way, we see this in churches all the time. So many Christians walk around in their communities thinking, well, we're so much better than these sinners. You're not better than them. You just know Christ. They don't. So again, when we see this, don't think, oh, those Pharisees, they've been evil since day one. I believe, I tend to think that these Pharisees said, we're tired of Roman influence, Hellenistic culture, corrupting our views, corrupting our law. We're going to stand up for the things of God. We're going to stand up for the things that are right. And we're going to do this together. We're going to commit ourselves to this. And it began, I believe, with great intentions. But it turned into, by the time Jesus steps on the scene, self-righteousness, judgmental nature, and condemnation of those who aren't like them. So again, they began to corrupt what their calling really was, to lead the nation of Israel in a closer walk with God. They should have been under shepherds, leading the people to God. Instead, their additional weights and traditions are leading people away from the Lord. I want to give you two references here from Christ. So Matthew 15, 14, you can jot this down maybe on the bottom somewhere. Speaking about these religious leaders, he says, let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Were they called to be blind guides? No, they're called to be guides leading them to God. But they're blind in their self-righteousness and their, their sin, really. And leading those that can't see into a pit. Matthew 23, 27 and 28, he says this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of, but within you are full of hypocrisy in lawlessness. So you look really good. It's like saying today somebody cleans up well for church. You look great. Everything on the outside looks good. You're impressing your neighbors. Everyone thinks you're righteous. But Jesus says, but I know your heart. And inside, dead man's bones. Inside, you are full of hypocrisy, full of lawlessness. That means you say one thing and do another. By the way, James says, we all struggle with this. We can all struggle with this idea. But these individuals, rather than repenting of that and turning to God and saying, I'm sorry, forgive me for that, they actually continue to put up this front, to put up this image, we're better than you, we're better than you, we're better than you. And so Jesus is speaking to this crowd, and he calls them out. Jesus was not afraid to call them out. And why was that? Because in love, this is what they needed to hear. Now, we haven't got there yet in Scripture to the point of the Gospels, but what does Paul say? Speak the truth in love. Remember last week we talked about the rich young ruler? Why did he tell him these things? Because he looked at him in love. 
He beheld him in love. God loves us so much that he's not going to lie to us. He's going to tell us the truth. Now, what we do with the truth, he gives us that ability to decide what we're going to do with the truth. But he's not guilty of not being honest with us. He tells us the truth. So why did Jesus get so harsh and real with these individuals? Because he actually loves them that much. Remember, the same grace that saves the publican could save the Pharisee. But it's, God's not guilty of not being honest. So again, what was the point of a parable? It's meant to draw in those that want to hear the truth. And the same grace that was for the known sinner is available to the Pharisee. Known sinner in reference to what the Pharisees would say. Well, those are sinners. Well, it might be known they're sinners, but they're all, we're all sinners. I wanted you to take a note here. And I know we're actually running long on time or short on time here, but I want to note here, what does Jesus say about the temple? What does Jesus say about the temple in, in verse 10? Why did they go to the temple? Okay, so this might be one of those things you just kind of read through real quick. Okay, yeah, go to church to pray. I want to pause here because when you're doing Bible study, let Scripture encourage you with Scripture. So when we think about this, we have to stop and put a little note under here. I put this right under the word pray in my notes. Temple to pray. So under pray, that's the purpose of the temple. That's the purpose of the temple. Now you can jot down uh, Luke 19. So Luke 19, 45 through 48. Somebody wants to turn there, actually. I don't have it for you, but if you want to turn there. Luke 19, 45 through 48. Once somebody's there, we'll do it like a sword drill. Just, got it, and go. Okay, Kelsey. Wow, she, she won! Good job. Uh, and he went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold therein and them that bought, saying unto them, It is written, My house is the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And he taught daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him and could not find what they might do. For all the people were very attentive to hear him. Okay. What did Jesus say was the purpose of the temple? It's a place of prayer, and for who? who? So his people, but not just his people. What's that? Nope, that's talking about the religious. All people. All people were called. Yeah, he says right there. It's supposed to be a place for all people to come and pray. Now, we know that there were levels to the temple. There was, you know, you could only go so far if you were a Gentile, so far if you were a woman. That's why the beauty of the cross removed all of that. But here's the point. Jesus got upset, righteous anger. Let's say it that way. By the way, he has anger. He's one of the emotions he gives us. And if it's sinless, then it's right. And if it's sinful, it's wrong. And we don't know righteous anger fully because we're sinful in our core. So a lot of people will say, well, I had righteous anger. You don't know that. Uh, you have the flesh. You've been corrupted. So don't, don't play that card. You probably most likely got angry for the right reasons, but didn't do the right thing in response. That's why the Bible says, be angry and sin not. Anger is not a sin. How we respond to our anger is a sin if we don't do it the right way. And so here Jesus gets angry and what was his anger driven by? What was causing him to be angry? Exactly. 
Right. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yes. We'll give you a deal. It'd be $29 for two doves versus the, it's, they're ripping them off. And also, it says that they were money changers. So you come to the temple from different cultures, different monetary systems. You have to exchange your money. They were making a profit on the exchange rate. They were robbing them. So many people, we've talked about this before, said, well, you're not supposed to sell things in church because, and they'll go to this passage. It wasn't that they were selling things, that they were robbing people. They were ripping them off. If you came without a sacrifice, you have to buy a sacrifice. That's okay. If you came with different money, you have to exchange that money. That's okay. It's the heart behind what they're doing. And Jesus reminds us, this is the point of the temple for prayer. Now let's pause there for a second and think about church. Now it doesn't specifically say that church, the purpose of church is to pray spelled out that way, but we do see in the new Testament an awful lot where prayer was vital in the church. I mean, what were they doing when the church was really founded in Acts two, Acts one, they were praying. What was happening when Peter was in prison? As soon as he was released, he went to the church and he found them praying. What does Paul say? The Christian should be consumed with. Pray without ceasing. Pray fervently. And so why do we have a time on Sunday morning for the gap room to be open for people to pray? Because we want to encourage prayer as a church. I've said it before. Why do we pray on Wednesday night? Why did we pray tonight? Why do we pray on Sunday morning? Because prayer is the engine that will drive the church. Without prayer, we're cutting ourselves off from the very power that God desires to give us to do the work he's called us to do. We need prayer. Prayer is not something we do before we eat and before we go to bed and that's it. Prayer is vital to our health as followers of Christ. Put it this way. If Jesus thought it was an important thing to do, we should consider it an important thing to do. And so here we see, I I don't miss that. Because here's the cool thing. The passage I gave you is in Luke 19. Last time I checked, that's after the passage that we're in, in Luke 18. So note this. Jesus slips into the story, the purpose of the temple, a chapter before he goes in and runs people out for not doing what the temple is for. Now, I'm not saying 100% dogmatically that Jesus was referring to that specific event that's going to take place, but I don't believe Jesus did anything by accident. And I think he was given a little precursor. I'm going to deal with this. By the way, I'm going to deal with that too in a little bit. He's getting, I'm going to get there. And so he's almost telling this group of religious people, you've also missed the whole point of the temple and prayer. But we'll deal with that in a chapter. And I kind of just imagine Jesus saying that. And the people are like, yeah, that's what the temple's for. And then a chapter later, they're like, whoa. He just threw people out, ran them out with a whip. Okay, tipping over tables and whatnot. So again, I find it amazing that Jesus gave a precursor to what he was going to do in this story. And most of us, myself included, we've missed this. We, oh yeah, that's what it's for. But he, Jesus, again, was giving a little heads up there. Um, so we might actually, let me think here. I don't know where we should start. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We'll go ahead and do the next section and then we'll stop because I don't want to go. Uh, we'll save the rest, the second half for next week. Um, so, Sets up the parable. Two verses. Verses 11 and 12. Let's look at the next section here. Uh, would someone like to read that for us? Just those two verses right off the paper there. Okay. I love that you read that without inflection because that's exactly how it would sound. 
That's exactly how it would sound. So, quick thing I want you to do, if you haven't done it already, is go through those two verses and just circle all the times you see the word I. Like, just take a second. If you didn't do it, maybe you did it originally. Oh, Sandra was showing me she already did it. Oh, good job. Next week, I'm going to bring candy and give it to those that win the sword drills, those that circle the words I suggest. It's going to be great. No, I'm not really going to do that. Just I was like, I'll pay attention next week. Oh, yeah. Okay. So you can see as you're doing that, this guy had, as I've heard said before, an eye problem, right? So there's the Pharisee and the publican. You can jot it down somewhere else to the side or on the bottom. The Pharisee is using his prayer time, and I put prayer in quotations, prayer time, as a time to impress God with all his good works. That's really what he's doing. He's giving a spiritual resume. So he's using his prayer time as a time to impress God, to give a resume to God. Do you notice what he's not doing in this prayer? Not once does he confess anything. Not once does he ask for forgiveness on anything. Not once does he ask for mercy. Not once does he admit his need for God in any way. And so what is he doing? Most likely, verse 9 and 10, he believes he's already righteous. I don't need to confess anything. I don't need mercy. I don't need that. I've got all this figured out. I'm already there. So again, can you imagine as he's standing in the temple praying, we know from other passages, He's wrapping up that gift of good works. He's tying the bow real big and pretty. And he's presenting it before God. And what is God, what's his response to that? It's filthy rags. Makes him sick. The Bible says his stomach is getting queasy and he wants to vomit. That's how that really translates. God wants to vomit when he smells the stench of our pride. Because this is what this man is doing. Yeah. Yep. Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do all these things? Absolutely. Yeah. So we see this man using this time for that. So what does he believe will justify him? We see it in his prayer, if you will. So what does he think will justify him according to his own words? Okay. What specific good works in the, okay. Fasting. How many times does he fast? Twice a week. And what does he tithe? All that he possesses, not a percentage, not just I tithe off of this much of my, you know, he says, everything I own, I tithe back to you. I give you this of mine. And so again, is tithing and fasting wrong or bad? No, it's actually encouraged in the Old Testament. We don't see Jesus, by the way, side note, when Jesus speaks of tithing, he usually speaks of it in the negative because he uses it in examples like this. Does that mean tithing is wrong? No. But Jesus is trying to change our thinking. Stop thinking about a tithe. Think about the heart of the tither. Why am I giving? Why am I doing this? Notice Jesus never commanded us to tithe. He never said you have to tithe. What did Jesus say? Give and it will be given unto you. What does Paul say about tithing or giving? Does Paul command us to tithe? No. He says between you and the Lord... In your hearts, you decide. And then just do that joyfully, cheerfully. Give, right? Again, 
it's not that tithing is wrong. Giving a tenth is not wrong, which the word tithe just means tenth. But it's not, that's not the focal point. Not the, the amount you give is not the point. This man was thinking, I fast twice, twice, twice in a week. Most likely this was, um, I believe if I remember right, it was like Monday and Thursday or something like that. It was the two days that they would tithe. And he says, I tithe or, or fast and I tithe all that I have. He's giving a resume. Okay, These things aren't bad, but again, used to try to impress God. But this is why Jesus never gives us these specific things in the New Testament, because he wants us to see the heart of what we're doing. We should be motivated to give or to fast, not because an external law says we have to, but because the relationship with Christ we have draws us to that by the Spirit. We want to fast because God is impressing on us to fast for whatever reason. We want to pray and seek him in some way, for some reason, because he's impressing that on us. Not because I want to impress you, right? By the way, this isn't just giving a resume to God. Who also is he giving a resume to? Yeah, whoever's within earshot, by the way, including the publican. Because if he says this publican in the story, remember this is a story, Now, I'm not saying there wasn't really literally a Pharisee and a publican standing within earshot of each other. That could have happened. But this is a story. Okay, this is not Jesus saying this literally took place. But I would tend to think something like this happened quite often. Because here's why I think that. He's speaking to a crowd of people who most likely are going, was he in the temple when I I was praying this? Right? I mean, because doesn't this happen to us? You ever been in a church service or you've been listening to a sermon on the radio or something and the guy's talking and you're like, were you with me when I was having that conversation? Were you in the car with me when I was thinking that? We've all felt those things. Why? Because the Spirit of God is saying, this is common among men. This is a common weakness. So I'm going to speak to this in a general sense, but the Spirit of God applies it individually because he works individually with us in an intimate way. So we're going to stop right there. I know we only, you're like, we only have two verses left. It's like two pages of notes. Okay, so we're going to stop there, and we'll come back to that other couple verses next week, which means we most likely will finish a little early next week. And so uh, we'll have time for questions and all those kind of things next week. So if you have any questions um, as you study this, maybe a little more, um, I encourage you to go ahead and do that. Take this home with you. Maybe do some more reading. Make some more notes. Again, um, your papers, if they look like this, you're doing pretty good job, I guess. I don't know. Sandra's got better pictures on hers, but um, write it up, mark it up, note it up. Okay. So let's go ahead and uh, we'll pray. Oh, thank you, ma'am. Appreciate that. No, no, you're good. We'll go ahead and and pray. And then uh, this week, don't forget, back to normal. So Wednesday night, 645 for Word of Life, seven o'clock for the adults. Um, And then remember this month, we're off and running. All kinds of things going on. We got men's prayer breakfast, Christmas decorating this coming Saturday, teen um, mall hunt this Saturday. Uh, We also have the ladies event coming up on the 10th, so sign up for that. We have uh, Salvation Army going on. Um, What else? Yeah, that's, I thank you if there's another one. Uh, The 18th, don't forget, we have the uh, Lapeer Symphony Orchestra coming and uh, performing a Christmas concert for us. That's a Sunday at 6 o'clock. Yep, right here. Yep. 
Yes, it's going to be awesome. Um, if you don't know, Keith Corbett is the conductor for the orchestra. He's been doing that for many, many, many years. And uh, there will be a community kids choir, I, I guess, that's going to be going on. That's separate from our church. But anyone in Lapeer County, any kids are welcome to be involved. Uh, Renee is, Corbett is going to be leading that for them. And so that's going to be, again, free concert here on the 18th. Everyone in the community is welcome to come, so please get the word out. We are still waiting. I've had a couple people ask me. We are still waiting for an official promotion, uh, posters and things like that from the orchestra. And so hopefully, prayerfully, this week sometime, we'll see something. And we'll get that on digital me- or get that digitally to put on our social media and all that kind of stuff. But just be getting the word out. Let, them, let people know about it. It's going to be great. We've tried to do this for a few years. Uh, we were really close, and then COVID hit. And once COVID hit, they really weren't doing concerts, obviously. So uh, I'm so thankful we can finally do this. And so we've measured, we've planned, we've plotted, and I think we'll fit an orchestra up there. I don't know how it's going to happen, but what's that? I, I don't know. Whatever they have at a, whatever, if you've ever been to one of their concerts, it's going to be just like their normal community concerts. So there's no fee, but there would be most likely a donation spot. Um, and again, that goes right to the, the orchestra. That's not us. Um, there's no service that night. There's no preaching. Um, we're just a venue for them. And so uh, we're just going to invite them in and get the community in and prayerfully through that build some relationships to see people back at church the following week for Christmas. And so, yes, Josiah. No, no. Um, it's, not, it's not a movie. Uh, it's, not, it's not a movie, but I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's good to know. I don't know what they do. I don't think they do food. Can we get some, like, some pretzels with some cheese? That would be a, that'd be a good one. Yeah, amen. See, he's like, I'm on board with that. I'll tell Keith. We'll see what we can do. Maybe get some pizza. I don't know, all kinds of things. Chicken wings. So, um, but yeah, so that's going on. Also, another thing, the 18th in the morning, our junior church, um, Terry and Julie's class, so that's like two-year-olds through five-year-olds, um, are going to be doing a couple songs for us that morning. Bless you. And then uh, the junior church, first through sixth grade, is going to be doing a Christmas skit for us as well. So they'll be doing a little, small little play. Um, so I'm excited for that. So that's all the morning of the 18th. And then that night, we're going to have the orchestra with us. And so it's just going to be a great week to celebrate Christmas. And uh, if you like uh, good music, come on out for the concert. And encourage you to be here in the morning to encourage the kids. It's, they've got a really funny skit. I, Sandra read this to me a few weeks ago, and I, we were both laughing. Now, it's going to be great. So we can't tell you anything about it, though. It's going to be hush-hush, secret, okay? But it's going to be great. So, all right, lots of stuff going on. So where you can plug in, please plug in, get involved. And, uh, yeah, we're excited for it. So let's go to prayer. And we'll ask the Lord to be with all of these events and our week ahead. Father, we do thank you, Lord, for this evening. I thank you for these that are able to be here tonight, Lord. And I just pray that you would help them to grow in, in grace and in knowledge of who you are. And Father, we thank you for this word. And Lord, I know that every single one of us, myself included at times, that we have felt that pull to be um, self-righteous and to be condemning and to look down on people who struggle with sin in, in different ways than we ever have or struggle with a certain kind of sin that we can't understand. Uh, Lord, I know that we can speak truth in love. Uh, we can call them to repentance. We can call them to what is right. But Lord, I pray that we would do so not in a condemning way, but in a way that, as Paul says, that we would go humbly 
because by the grace of God, that could be us. And so, uh, Lord, rather without the grace of God, that would be us. And so, Lord, I just pray that you'd give us wisdom in this as we go into our week and our conversations with coworkers, family members, uh, Lord, family and friends, Lord, whatever we find, wherever we find ourselves this week, uh, having those conversations, I pray you'd give us wisdom, understanding, compassion. Uh, Lord, for those that don't know Christ, I pray that we would see them as you see them, as sheep having no shepherd, Lord, just lost and undone as we once were. And so thank you, Lord, for your grace that uh, was given to us, that we might know you as Savior. And Father, I pray that we would extend that invitation to those around us. Lord, there will always be those who don't listen, who don't respond, who don't receive Christ. I pray that that would not stop us from preaching the gospel and sharing our faith, Lord, but that it would, in fact, it would help us to see that there is a great need. And we leave it in your hands. We share our faith. We share the gospel. Uh, we preach it to every creature, uh, Lord. And then we trust you with the, with the outcome. You give the increase. We just plant seeds. We water. We nurture. But, Lord, you give the increase. And so may you be glorified in all of that as you work in people's hearts and minds as only you can. Father, we do pray for all of the events coming up this month. It's going to be such a busy month, but an exciting month for so many things going on. And I just pray that each and every event would bring glory to you would advance your kingdom, would draw people into a closer walk with you, connect them deeper into the church, and Lord, that we would see again just people grow in Christ and come to know you. Father, again, we thank you for all of this. Go with us now as we go our separate ways, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.